0: The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. a child, and I've enjoyed listening to it many times this Christmas season. However, as I was listening to this year, I really noticed the beauty and truth that lies within this. For the first time, the opening verses of this timeless Christmas song communicate deep truths about the reason why Jesus came, And how we are called to respond to him. Jesus sets us free from our fears and sins and we are called to find rest in him. I believe that it's fitting to end 2020 by reflecting on rest. This morning we are closing out a four-part series called Because Jesus Came. We've already reflected on the truth that because Jesus came, we have love, joy, and hope. Today we'll be looking at rest. Quite literally the pandemic is ruining our ability to rest. The Harvard School of Public Health noted a spike in insomnia during the beginning phases of the coronavirus and the subsequent lockdown. Other public health experts have have coined the term coronasomnia to properly give attribution to the cause of the widespread insomnia. Whatever the name or cause, I think we've all at least anecdotally experienced the fact that even though we are collectively home more than we've ever been, we're more tired, weary, and exhausted than we have ever imagined. Through the pandemic, widespread political unrest, job loss, and a host of other challenges, we have seen firsthand and been reminded of the depravity of the world. At the end of a year like 2020, it's easy to understand how creation groans in eager anticipation for redemption. So as we make resolutions or goals and begin to take down the Christmas decorations in hesitant anticipation towards a new year, What can bring rest to our weary and burdened souls? That is a question we'll reflect on today. My name is Andy, and I'm a covenant partner here at Gospel City Church, and I'm so excited to be with you, even though it is over uh, Zoom in this uh, odd time. So thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Uh, The main text we'll be reading from is Hebrews 4, 1 through 13, and we'll also be looking at a few other texts, but I will uh, read those to you. So if you have a copy of God's word, open up to Hebrews 4, 1 through 13 for the reading of our passage this morning. So Hebrews 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message that they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith who formally received the good news, failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today saying through David, so long afterwards in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is alive and which is powerful and which can pierce and cut through to our heart. Father, I confess a weariness at the end of this year. Lord, I pray that you would use your word and your promises of old and faithfulness throughout the ages to instruct and encourage your church this morning. I pray that you would speak through me this morning. Lord, I pray that you would make your words live to us and show us our Savior through your words this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. These words that uh, we just read and that we'll be studying this morning were written to a group of first century believers from a Hebrew background. The author of Hebrews is writing in order to encourage the believers to hold fast to their confession of Christ and not go back to Judaism despite the the persecution and possible suffering which they might encounter. In other words, the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were were deeply familiar with the Old Testament promises and the Old Testament language, the the, uh, prophecies and the speech. Throughout the letter, the author is encouraging the believers by reminding them of God's faithfulness through keeping his promises, And of Christ's supremacy over all things. This passage in Hebrews 4 1 through 13 is no different. The text is dripping with the language and promises of the Old Testament in relation to rest and Sabbath. In this text, there are four main points which we can see. First is that rest has been promised, the second is that rest can be missed, the third is that rest is a call to cease. And the fourth is that rest in this life secures rest for the next. The first point, rest has been promised, is evident from the opening lines of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. A key point in understanding of this promise and the significance which it has for the text is the world still stands. The promise of rest is not being instituted here in Hebrews 4. Rather, as Hebrews 4.4 alludes to, the promise of rest goes back to creation itself. Uh, If you would appease me for a moment, I'd like to take us through a brief trip to the Old Testament to the ideal and the creation of rest and Sabbath. Genesis 2.1-3 is the first mention of rest in the Bible, and it's foundational in understanding rest and Sabbath properly. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The fact that the Sabbath was instituted during the events of creation shows the significance of it. In fact, uh, one theologian claims that not only is the Sabbath rooted in creation, uh, but the Sabbath is the pinnacle of the creation week. He wrote that the climax of Genesis 1 and 2 is not the creation of male and female to subdue the earth, but it's the institution of the Sabbath itself. Rest and Sabbath are important themes in the Bible as uh, as they are first manifest in the creation of the world. The first references to rest and Sabbath come here in Genesis 2. The idea of rest is continued throughout the Old Testament, demonstrating events such as God providing a double portion of manna in the wilderness on the sixth day so that the people would avoid a violation of the Sabbath on the seventh. Manna was the bread from heaven which God provided to the Israelites as they were wandering through the desert. The Israelites had been freed from century-long captivity in Egypt. And it was a clear act of God demonstrating his power and love and the Ten Commandments and the parting of the Red Sea. But while God is leading his people through the, the wilderness, after delivering them from the hand of Egypt, the people complain and grumble. They complained and said it would have been better if they'd been killed or better if they were still in Egypt. But now, as it were, they were in the, the desert, in the wilderness, without food. God heard their grumbling and their complaining, and he rained down bread from heaven, known as manna for the Israelite camp. And Exodus 164 4-5 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Your people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. An important note to make about this manna being uh, given on the sixth day as a uh, double portion in order to avoid the violation of the Sabbath breaking on the seventh is the placement that this is in the biblical narrative. The story of the Israelites gaining the double portion of manna in the wilderness is in Exodus 16, whereas the Ten Commandments are not given until Exodus 20. So this again shows the fact that rest was embedded in creation. This promised rest that the author of Hebrews is calling the people to in Hebrews 4 uh, has been around since the foundation of the world. Even before the command was given to Sabbath in Exodus 20, God was orchestrating a rest for his people. And while we are in the Old Testament and discussing the concept of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments bears our attention. And it's recorded in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And the two recordings, it's the only commandment with variations, and both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and both give us different insights into the concept of Sabbath and God's rest. Read in Exodus 20, the command says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea in the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. The command to remember the Sabbath day in Exodus 20 is rooted in God's rest after the creation of the world. This is what we read about in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. It reiterates the importance of a seventh day week with one of the days being devoted to rest. The term remember is a marker and signifier of God's of the Sabbath's place in creation. God's rest was something that they were called to take part in and called to remember as it was instituted in Genesis 2, in the creation act itself. In Deuteronomy 5, the command reads, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well. And here in verse 15 is the key difference. It says, "You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The commandment in Deuteronomy has a bit of a variation, with the emphasis added on to the Lord's redemption of his people from uh, from Egypt. Association between rest and redemption is important for understanding and applying this commandment. One of the purposes of the Sabbath under the Old Covenant was for the people to remember God's great act of salvation in the Exodus from Egypt. However, the fourth commandment, along with the rest of the Ten Commandments, were never meant to bring about justification. Justification is the act of making oneself right before God. So this law, these Ten Commandments, were never meant to make, uh, make people right before God. They were never meant to bring about justification. The laws were given to Israel in order to sanctify them, to make them stand apart from the rest of the nations, make it clear these were God's people. They had a certain set of laws that they were following to set them apart. Sanctification, it's a continuing change worked about by God. It's freeing us from our sinful habits, forming us in in Christ-like affections and desires. So the whole law, including the Sabbath, it was given after the exodus. Like we looked at before, they were already in the wilderness when they got the Ten Commandments. It was not a set of works, a set of laws which they had to keep in order to receive salvations. It was a means by which God had set his people apart. And the call of the Sabbath to remember God's deliverance from Egypt, it's also a call to anticipate the exodus from sin and salvation, which will come in true and eternal rest. So this is all the background which the original audience, the Hebrews, uh, would have known as the author says, uh, talks about a promised rest. When he makes the reference to the promise of entering God's rest, it would have been like a biblical hyperlink, if you will, to the original recipients. The concept of God's rest is rich in the Old Testament. As the first verse we read, says, therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest, entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. At the creation of the world, God rested and instituted his Sabbath. Verse four says, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God being all powerful did not need to rest out of weariness or tiredness, but he rested in order to establish the hope and promise of rest within the creation narrative itself. From the foundation of the world, God has been pointing his people towards an eternal rest, which was yet to come. The first point we see from the text is that rest has been promised. The next point we see is that rest can be missed we we'll look again to Hebrews 4, we see the point evidently clear as we continue reading, picking up in verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world... For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore remains for some to enter and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The passage here presents multiple ways in which people can miss out on entering God's rest. An important note to make, is that the author here is quoting and almost preaching from Psalm 95 in this passage. When we read of the distinction between the two parties, the us and them, the they and we, it's the difference between the Israelite desert generation, the ones who would have been taking that manna, that double portion on the sixth day, like we just looked at next to 16, and the first century Hebrews, who are receiving this letter. So that's the distinction that's talking about between the us and the them. It's those two parties. And the author appears to be communicating two ways in which the desert generation missed out on the rest of God. The first is by having a hardened heart when they heard the good news. Uh, This is demonstrated in verses two, six, and seven. For if good news came to us just as them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith, with those who listen since therefore it remained for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience and then verse seven today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts the men and women who have missed God's rest they did not lack the opportunities to hear about it and enter into it the good news or gospel came to them but because of their hardness of hearts because of their disobedience The good news was of no benefit to them. What a tragic verse. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Brothers and sisters, let that not be said of us that the gospel, the good news came to us, but it did not benefit us. The author of Hebrews is clearly demonstrating how easy it can be to fail to enter God's rest. In so doing, the author is calling the audience to not miss out on this. The whole passage is filled with warnings against missing the rest. The first way the author demonstrated people missing out on God's rest was by having a hardened heart and hearing the good news. The second was by misunderstanding exactly what God's rest was. Again, he appoints a certain day, saying today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is verse 7, just where we read, Coming out of verse eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Joshua was Moses's successor, and he, of course, is the one who famously takes the Israelites into Canaan, into the promised land, once the desert generation had passed away. And there appears to be a belief from the desert, uh, from those that enter Canaan, That entering the promised land would be the consummation, the fulfillment of God's rest uh, brought about for the Israelites. And in comparison to slavery in Egypt and 40 years of wandering in the desert, a land flowing with milk and honey must have been a welcome site for the weary Israelite party, a place where they would have assumed rest would come. However, as the biblical and redemptive storyline moves on, we see that. Entering the promised land was not meant to be seen as entering into God's rest. In the original language, and this is something that the Hebrews uh, would have picked up on, the names Joshua and Jesus are identical. The original readers of Hebrews could not have avoided the implicit contrast between Joshua or the Jesus who failed to give them rest, who failed to bring them into rest, and the Jesus who would bring them into rest, the the type of Joshua who would bring them into eternal rest. So the second point is that rest can be missed. It can be missed by having a hardened heart when receiving the good news or by having a misunderstanding of what God's rest actually is. Entering into Canaan was no doubt restful for people who had been in slavery for generations and roaming the desert for many years. Having any place, let alone uh, the promised land to settle into, would have been a restful and joyous occasion. But it was still earthly, which meant it was still fallen and temporal. God's rest is neither fallen nor temporal. And it's reminiscent of C.S. Lewis's famous words in The Weight of Glory. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the the people in Psalm 95, the people that entered into Canaan and entered into the promised land, they were too earthly minded. They were far too easily pleased by entering the land of milk and honey that they couldn't even imagine or conceptualize what was meant by the eternal rest That Jesus would bring about. In a worldly, earthly sense, the promised land of Canaan was as good as it came. However, in comparison to the eternal rest of God, well, there's really no sense in comparing the two. We've seen that rest has been promised, and rest can be missed. The Hebrews were taught that there remained a Sabbath rest for God's people. Our question this morning is, how does the church attain this Sabbath rest? we see that just like the Hebrews the eternal rest of God is found through resting in salvation and that Christ won for us on the cross now we're going to look at what the rest calls us to and how we can enter into rest and the third point we see from this passage is rest is a call to cease speaking up at Hebrews 4:9 so then there remains a sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So we come to another passage with a lot of mentions of rest and Sabbath. And uh, the question that we want to look at is what exactly are we meant to do with this? As present day believers in Kuala Lumpur, what are we meant to learn from this? I think the takeaway from us this morning is we learn that we must have rest not only from our earthly labors, but from our attempts at self righteousness to prove ourselves just before a holy God. The call of rest to cease is twofold. It's a call to, of rest to cease demonstrated in God's rest of creation. This is what we looked at in Genesis 2 1 through 3. God did not need to rest. He was all, he is all powerful. He was not weary. He did not need to rest but he rested to demonstrate that the work had been done and we needed to rest he rested and so because of God's rest we're called into rest and the other dimension of rest I think is one that is challenging uh, for us to grasp and challenging for us to apply and it's that this rest is a call for us to cease from our self-righteous work and toil The call to cease from self-righteous toil is really the antithesis of the Santa Claus Christmas story. The Santa Claus Christmas story tells us that throughout the year, we must live a righteous life in order to receive a reward or benefit at the end of the year. You know, you better watch out. You better not cry. Because if you do, uh, if you mess up just once, Santa's watching and all you're going to get for Christmas this year is a lump of coal. Brothers and sisters, as those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, the notion of doing anything to gain righteousness, to gain favor, to gain works, should be appalling. We would all say that we know this and acknowledge this, but in practice, I believe it's a very challenging call for us. Humans are prone to be idol makers. It's in our nature to elevate that which is temporal and unworthy to a place of eternal and salvific. And that's what we're doing when we're placing our faith of salvation in any part, any iota. If we're placing any hope of salvation, even the smallest bit in something other than Christ, that's what we're doing. We're trying to earn favor, earn works through self-righteous toil for ourselves. And brothers and sisters, it's something that we were never intended to do. We live in a busy urban center of Kuala Lumpur. We're all familiar with setting goals, using KPIs to measure our performance in the workplace. In fact, the STAR published an article earlier this year saying that Malaysia, and namely in Kuala Lumpur, the workers, have the worst work-life balance in the world. We live in a city that is restless, a place where status and self-worth are driven by the position that you have or the amount of wealth that you've acquired. We're idol makers because we long for our own glory. One glimpse of the KL skyline and the new Minara One One Eight will tell you that we haven't come as far from Genesis twelve and the Tower of Babel as we might suspect. We desire to make a great name for ourselves. We desire self worth and self satisfaction. To be clear, having a good job where you work hard is and make money it's neither a crime nor a sin in fact it's rather necessary to have a job in order to to provide food and shelter it's a good thing to work hard unto the lord but the elevation of temporary worldly things such as jobs to a place where you find worth and minimize salvation and grace provided through jesus alone that's not what we're meant to do Maybe considering the following scenario with with me would help. And if you are married or live with someone, then uh, you can put yourself in these same shoes. I'm a firm believer that one, uh, one evidence of the fallen world is that we still have to do dishes. All of the advancements in technology and AI, and we still have a soap, sponge, and dishes in our sink, and we're still washing them. So I want you to imagine the scenario. Put yourself in your sh- the shoes, but imagine Becca and I are having a nice meal one evening. After the meal, we're tired and we call it a night. Sink is still overflowing with dishes, grease is all stained around, stuff's getting caked on. which is a real nasty job. And Becca wakes up early next morning and washes all the dishes, which is a very kind thing to do. I come downstairs and upon seeing the dishes in the drying rack, I go over and give her a big hug. I say, thank you for doing the dishes. I praise you for doing the dishes. There's truly no one who has ever ever lived or will live that can do the dishes like you just did. I'm so thankful you're my wife. And theatrics aside, you know, she says, thank you and kind of moves on with her day without second thoughts. You know, a few minutes later, she walks to the kitchen and she sees I'm taking the dishes out of the drying rack, placing them in the sink, water's running. And she comes over, she says, what are you doing? the dishes are finished. You don't have to do that. I'm like, yes, thank you. Thank you for doing the dishes. You did a great job. I praise you for doing the dishes. Truly, there's no one who has ever lived or will live that can do the dishes like you just did. I'm so thankful you're my wife. Confused a bit more, but she says okay and keeps going on with her day. And she comes back in a few minutes later, and this time, you know, I've got my gloves on, I've got the sponge, is, it's wet, it's got soap on it, and I'm, I'm re, re-washing the pans, I'm doing the dishes, and she's like, what are you doing? I woke up early, I wanted to be able to have the sink and the dishes cleaned when you got home, and, and there's, the, the, I've already worked for this. This was hard work, it took me a long time. The dishes are done, why are you doing this? And I say, yeah, you're right, thank you for doing the dishes. I praise you for doing the dishes. There's truly no one who has lived or will live that can do the dishes like you just did. I'm so thankful you're my wife. If we can imagine how patronizing and shameful and disrespectful it is to rewash clean dishes that a loved one took the time to clean. Imagine how the savior of the universe feels when we put even one ounce of undue weight for our salvation on something other than him. You know, at church on Sunday or after reading the Bible, we say, Jesus, thank you for your grace. I praise you for your grace. Truly, there is no one who has lived or will live that can bring about salvation like you can. I'm so thankful you are my savior. But throughout the week, we tend to find our assurance for salvation in the works we do rather than in the completed work of Christ. We find insurance in how good our jobs are, how much we love our children, how much we serve the church or even how much we share the gospel throughout the week we're tabulating a salvation scorecard for ourselves and it's weary and burdensome work we come to church in the next moment of personal bible study and christ calls out at us he convicts us and we turn to jesus and we say jesus thank you for your grace i praise you for your grace Truly, there's no one who has lived or will live that can bring about grace and salvation like you have. I'm so thankful you're my Savior. And if you're like me, uh, some of us, even in that repentance prayer, we're thinking, wow, that was a good prayer. Jesus is lucky to be your Savior. And we're doing it again. We're right back into tabulating another tick, another notch on our salvation scorecard. Brothers and sisters, let us heed these words and cease from this undue work. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We must rest in the finished work of Christ. As the author of Hebrews wrote, Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, we were never meant to carry the weight of salvation on our shoulders. We were never meant to have to work for our salvation. It's a tireless and impossible task for us to complete. The standard and requirement for God is perfection. The law was too much for mankind to bear. That's why in Nehemiah 8, when Ezra reads and explains the meaning of the law to the people, they wept. They heard and understood the law. They knew that they could never match the righteous requirements of God. But then enters into the picture of Jesus, and he brings a thrill of hope. Oh, how the weary world rejoiced, for he brought a new and glorious morn. Enter Jesus, the one who brings about the promise of God's rest. The type of Joshua who brings his people into eternal rest. And what does he call his people to do? He does not call them to work for salvation. He says, come. He says, rest. We can never bear the weight of our sin. We can never do enough work to merit salvation. Jesus enters and he has a very different message. Rest, stop, the work is done. It is finished. It's the message that Jesus cried out from the cross when he was crucified. It is finished. And with that, the veil was torn, giving access to the Holy of Holies, giving access for man to God himself. It is finished. The work of salvation was finished. It was purchased. It was bought. It was given by Jesus' very life. It's finished. The search for identity, meaning, value, and salvation is over. Jesus provides it all. Listen to these tender words of our Savior Christ from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the good news of the Christmas season, is it not? We don't have to work hard at self-righteous toil in order to appease an all-seeing hermit with a naughty or nice list. In order to enter into God's rest, we must rest from our self-righteous toil and follow Christ. That brings us to our final point this morning from Hebrews 4, which is rest in this life secures rest in the next. Brothers and sisters, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. A rest from self-righteous toil, an eternal rest united with Christ. In order to enter God's rest, we must rest in this life. We must not make undue attempts to earn and gain salvation for ourselves. These attempts are impossible tasks. No, all we must do is rest in the finished work of Christ. God is not calling us to a slothful binge-watching potato chip and soda-induced rest. He is calling us to trust and rest in the truth that his grace alone is sufficient for our salvation. And we have been saved alone through faith alone, have we not? Our salvation is not a potluck. Jesus does not bring the main dish of grace and ask us to bring a side dish of merit. The work has been finished. Jesus paid the full price for your redemption and for my redemption on the cross. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God and not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God promised beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ has completed the work. Our salvation is not on account of the things that we have done. Rather, it is based in the person who gives us grace and calls us into rest. This does not mean we stop working or stop caring and just spend our days binge watching the latest episodes waiting for eternal rest. Work is good. God gave Adam and Eve work to do in the garden. And in Ephesians 2, we see that God himself created us to do good works. So God is not calling us to a slothfulness or laziness. He is calling us to relinquish that which we were never made to do. You and I were never created to bring about our own salvation. we were never meant to find salvation in albeit good, but temporal and worldly things. From the foundation of the world, the work has been completed and it's been accomplished. The plan A has always been Christ. The law did not go awry and cause God to go and search for plan B. Christ, working for your salvation, has always been the way for us to rest from the toil of self-righteousness in this life and the way to eternity and eternal rest with Christ in the next. So God is calling us to rest in his promises, to stop working for our salvation in this life in order that we may go to the eternal rest. The promised rest, which was instituted in Genesis 2, which was communicated throughout the biblical story in which we can enter into through christ so gospel city church some of you may be hearing that this morning and it may be confusing it may not sound like the jesus or the salvation story you've heard about you may be saying to yourself if jesus knew the things i had done in my past then surely he'd want me to work for righteousness before coming to him And friend, if you're thinking that this morning, I just want to tell you that's a lie. There's no wrong or sin you've committed that can bring you to a place where Christ can no longer bring you salvation and rest. And there is no merit or good deed you can do that can bring you into his favor. He created you. He loves you while you were still sinner, while you were still doing that which you hold on to in the deepest recesses of your shame. Christ was born for you in order that he may give his life and bring you into his rest. And that's the hope of Christmas. There was never anything we could do to earn salvation. There was never anything we could do to bring ourselves into that promised eternal rest. And our Savior bought and worked out our salvation with his own life on the cross. And he gently calls us to come rest. So if you are a follower of Jesus joining us this morning. I just want to call you and encourage you to cease from your self-righteous toil and find rest in Jesus. During the discussion groups in a few minutes, there will be some reflection questions which are given to help you think through and apply how you can cease from your self-righteous work and rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. If you're joining us this morning and you've not yet followed Jesus, if you've not yet found rest in him, I want to challenge you to reflect on the truth that we read earlier. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, there remains a Sabbath rest for you to enter through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He came so that you may rest. As we close out the year looking to 2021, I want to encourage you and challenge you to remember who the guarantor of our rest in Christ is. Romans 8:31 through 32 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is faithful. It pleased him to crush his own son, in order that we may have forgiveness and be clothed in his righteousness and him alone. God will ensure the fulfillment of our rest in eternity. Until that day, our call is to cease from our self-righteous toil and find rest in Christ alone. Come what may in this world, persecution, famine, darkness, or sword, God is a guarantor of the rest that he has promised. He is the one who gave his own son in order that we may have salvation. Our call is to find rest in him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Christmas season in which we were able to celebrate and remember the birth of your son in order that we may have life. We thank you for your word, which teaches us and instructs us in your ways. I pray for our time and discussion groups. Lord, we desire for you to be glorified by us resting and placing our whole trust in you for salvation. In Christ, it's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.